Grab your Bibles with me and turn with me to the book of Jonah. You'll find Jonah in the latter part of your Old Testament, uh, just after Obadiah, just before Micah. It's been a joy to preach this short four-chapter book over this last month or so. And today we're going to bring it to a conclusion as we look to the final chapter, chapter 4, together. Uh, as we turn to chapter 4, we, we are faced with a surprise ending uh, to Jonah's testimony. It's kind of like a weird indie film uh, in that it seems like everything's going to be this big happy dance, sunset, you know, triumphal finish, celebratory finish. Uh, but instead it turns sour and, and Jonah... Uh, instead of riding off into the sunset, runs into the open, hot desert and uh, just consumed in, in a bitter rage and resentment. Uh, we, he's got disregard uh, for the hundreds of thousands of lives that were just spared by God's grace. And he finds himself just making it about himself, uh, just resentful towards God, towards the Ninevites. And so... Uh, I think it's, it's fitting and helpful for us as we study chapter 4 uh, to think of how often in the midst of God doing amazing things in our own lives, uh, we too can get sinfully focused on ourselves and, and on our drama and can become resentful at, at God's sovereign hand and the work he's doing um, in, in the world and in redemption. Um, and so... This is a, a well-appointed study for us to, to glean from his word and these truths. And so I'm excited about what he has before us. Before we turn to chapter 4, I'd like to look again with you at the last verse of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. It says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the dominant city center of the Assyrian Empire of that day. Nineveh, this city that, that just had this amazing response to Jonah's preaching, his call for repentance from the Lord, and they repented. These were wicked and detestable people, a godless, evil, ruthless, violent, idol-worshipping people. Uh, who in God's perfect, providential will made, made it possible for them to repent from their sin and turn to Him. Praise the Lord. Uh, church, the, the revival of Nineveh is no small thing. It, and, and we need to not let it just kind of wash over us as this moment in history, but as a high point in Scripture to remind us of the absolute amazing grace of God. God who is holy and, and perfect and, and do all honor and obedience from his creation, who doesn't owe us anything, he's given us everything we have and life itself, the breath in our lungs in this very moment, and yet we are the ones who fall utterly short of his glory, of his holy standard. We are the ones who have done evil and injustice and, and have only looked to serve our own selfishness and fulfill our own agenda and our fleshly desires. In our current day, man is in love with this idea of human rights. And, and most people wrongly assume that God owes mankind something good. Uh, at least a chance to salvation. But we have to hear me clearly. We have to understand Scripture rightly. God owes sinful man only one thing. He owes unrepentant, sinful mankind his righteous and eternal wrath. R remember how Paul describes us. He's talking to Christians in this passage and our condition before we were saved, before Christ was Lord of our lives and God gave us new birth. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the bad news of the reality of our sin and the penalty we are due because of our sin. We're due His wrath. But there's good news. Look at the next two verses with me. Verse 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Dead in sin, guilty through and through, done nothing to merit or earn any kind of redemption. God in His grace brings salvation. By grace, we've been saved. By grace, God chooses to save many. This is truly amazing news. For many undeserving people, wicked, sinful, self-minded people, God gives a new heart and they repent from their sin and they trust Him and begin to live for Him with their lives and their days. This is what He did for this most wicked nation. The Syrian nation, the city of Nineveh, after Jonah had preached and called them to repentance. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. He gave them His grace. They did not deserve it. They were surely deserving of it. And what we must see is God was not obligated to give it. This is the definition of grace. So many people use this word grace and they don't rightly understand it. Grace is is a gift, an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. If the giver is obligated in any way to give it or the person receiving it is deserving of it in any way, it is not grace. It's something else. Saving grace is a gift Salvation is a gift. It is a gift from God, the only one who can give it. It is a gift He's not obligated to give in any way, and so we are wrong to think that He should. What He owes sinful mankind justly, rightly, is His wrath. Just like you would expect a a good judge to give a right ruling for a guilty person. And we have to understand we're not deserving of it in any way. Mankind is way too high of a view of ourselves. We need to stop seeing ourselves in light of each other and rightly see ourselves in light of the holy standard of God alone, whereby we are absolutely fallen short. This is what Scripture has told us through and through. The Bible proclaims that we all fall short of the glory of God, that what sinners deserve or have earned is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wage, the, the thing I earn because of my sin is death. Jesus declared in Matthew 7, 13, For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, judgment, wrath. Hebrews 10, 26-27, in the NIV it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is imperative that we realize that none of our excuses will hold any weight before God on our judgment day. 
Your excuses, you might get away with excuses for your spouse, for your boss, for your friend. But you cannot excuse yourself before God and his holy standard. The Apostle Paul wrote that in the day of judgment, Romans 3.19, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held account- so that the whole world may be held accountable. When the holy judge takes the bench, there will not be a single protest. Please understand, God is not ab- obligated to save anyone. He is good and, and to be praised for his righteous judgment and justice on unrepentant sinners. If he was obligated, then grace is no longer grace. If God were obligated to be gracious, grace would no longer be grace, and salvation would be based on some amount of human merit rather than on grace alone. This was the, this was the hinge point, one of the markers of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. That it's not grace plus some other merit we bring to the table. It is grace alone. God's grace alone we are saved. To add anything to grace is to deny grace altogether. It's to wrongly define it. And yet, it's around us. The question is, do we rightly understand it? The most recorded song in history by the, by the greatest number of artists is the song, Amazing Grace. Written in 1779 by John Newton. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace doesn't make sense unless we see rightly our wretchedness before holy God. Grace is not amazing if I don't understand that it is an unobligated gift to a person who doesn't deserve it. This is the difference between people who have been around the church and know religion and people who really get the grace of God and worship Him and live for Him because of it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Grace really is amazing, but all too often people don't truly marvel at how amazing it is. See, Jonah knew about the grace of God. Peek with me ahead at chapter 4, the second part of verse 2. He says in his prayer to God, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God, who is holy and just and perfect in every way, has every right to smite us, to end us where we sit or stand, right because of our sin. He has every right not to give us another day because of our sin, another minute. But he's gracious and he's merciful. He is slow to anger. And instead, he abounds in steadfast love for his people. For those he has chosen to save, even many who were the worst of mankind, he chose in his grace to make them a new creation, to put the blood of his Son upon them. And in this, he relents from giving them the disaster they deserved. Oh, I want us to see that we are so wrong to think that God owes us anything good in our sin. No, he owes us only wrath for our sin. And then we need to see how absolutely amazing it is that he saves anyone we're so bold to run to him and go, why don't you save this person, that person, more people? We should be instead amazed that he saves anyone. For no one is righteous, no, not one. 
This is what makes his grace so amazing. I want us to see the power of God's saving grace on this most wicked nation of Nineveh so that we never forget that no person is too far gone. I, I mean, you have to see the weight. These people were guilty of cutting people's heads off, burying them with their tongues pulled open so things could climb in and out of their mouth until they died, skewering them on poles upside down. I mean, this was, this is Al-Qaeda. This is people who are doing horrific things in the world. And all of a sudden they are repentant and, and turning unto God. These people who you know were guilty of these things are now new. A whole city, a whole nation represented in this city. No person is too far gone from God's grace. No lifetime of sin is outside the reach of God's saving grace. To say that 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 someone is outside the reach is to say that the perfect blood of God the Son is not good enough or big enough to cover all their sin. I'll often run into Christians who say they're thankful for God's saving grace, but still will claim some sin in their life by which they would say, I, I can't be forgiven for this. That they won't themselves be forgiven. And I would argue maybe you don't really understand the grace of God yet then. Because in Christ you are forgiven. And his blood is big enough. If the Lord wills the most wicked person you know in your life, the person you can't even hardly stand to think about, can be saved from their sin and turn to become a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you praying that way for those people? I pray you are. Consider the magnitude of what Jonah just witnessed. Over a hundred thousand people repented and are saved from God's wrath by His grace. Jonah just witnessed this. It happened. This is only possible because the perfect one God the Son, Jesus Christ, would one day take on the sin that they deserve to have wrath spilled out on. He would drink from the cup of wrath on their behalf. I want you to notice something with me. This is powerful. Jonah walks into these massive gates, past all the impaled people and deadheads all over, all the violence surrounding him, into this huge city, as we've defined in previous sermons. Just gargantuan city. Walks in. He preaches boldly truth. You need to repent before God. To his enemy. Walks into their streets. Walks up and down their streets and says this. God protects him. The wicked Ninevites don't impale him on a pole or beat him to death. But consider with me another man, Jesus, God the Son, who took on flesh, the only man to ever live without sin, went into another city, a city filled with his enemy. He too preached truth, called them to repentance, and by God's permission and will, they falsely accused him, lied about him, beat him, tore his flesh from his body, drove him onto a cross until he died. He did this so that God's saving grace could be applied to the Ninevites. And one day, to each one of us who would repent of our sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Praise God. How I pray you see the grace of God. I pray you you not only see it, but you savor it. It changes you. To the point you repent of your sin and you trust your life to God. And that you are saved. That you abandon your godless ways and see that none of this life matters for anything good in eternity unless you are forgiven by God and restored to Him through the blood of Jesus. 
for, this, for the saved, may we grow never tired of proclaiming His amazing grace and of celebrating His amazing grace. He has predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. We will forever praise Him for His glorious grace, church. Jonah should have been absolutely stoked to see this wicked city repent. This was a revival. But instead, look with me at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Notice with me that God is slow to anger and Jonah is quickly angered. What a difference between us and God. So many of us have fought for many years the sin of being quick to anger. I won't ask for a raise of hands because I know some of you enough to know you might need to stand on your chair to proclaim rightly how much you struggle with that. Do you find yourself quick to anger because things don't go your way? Or or didn't meet your expectations? God, who had every reason to be righteously angry, turned from his anger in grace. Jonah, who had no good reason to be angry, turns towards sinful anger. Now, now this is very odd to me in that one of the highest aims and hopes of a prophet of God or a minister of God, a preacher of God's word, is as, as one who is speaking the truths of God, is to see the conversion of sinners. This is one of the high, sweet things that we get to be part of. But Jonah is displeased at this most historic revival. After his preaching, at the mercy of God shown to them, in his sin, Jonah all of a sudden is returning to his old ways, going back to why he rebelled against God's command for him in the first place, saying in his prayer to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew about God's grace. He had had as a prophet of God, he'd had a front row seat to see it over his years. To see the amazing sovereign work of God. That if God wanted to save the most wicked city, he could and he would. That's the confidence we need to preach the word on the streets of Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. Why we're sending missionaries into countries who if they knew they were there, they would kill them and their children. Why do we do that? Because of God's commission on us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Because if there are his elect there whom he intends to save, they will be saved. And that's why we go. Not because we're fearful of some other human king, but because we serve the king of kings. Amen? Maybe like Jonah, who knew about the grace of God, but was having a hard time rejoicing in it, maybe we too can be guilty in a modern era of loving the doctrines of grace and the the learning about the things of God, but we miss many opportunities to enjoy or testify or celebrate the grace that saves lives like it does. How desperate are we for the gospel to work in us as well? Only when Christ is our satisfaction and our identity will we slow to anger, as James counsels us in James chapter 1, 19-20. We just finished preaching through the book of James this last year. If you're just joining us, that's on our podcast, and it was a joyful series to work through. And in chapter 1, 20, 19 and 20, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Whenever we are stirred up or you feel led to unrighteous anger, it is good to slow down, to take it to the Lord in prayer, to dive into his holy word, and many times to invite near a brother or sister to help reorient your thinking or your affections to the Lord. Left alone, our flesh sinfully, selfishly will turn to vent in anger instead. James says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. When we're only thinking of ourselves, we will be quick to speak regarding what is bothering us or what has happened that we feel like is wrong. But when I'm thinking of others, when I'm applying the gospel, I will slow to listen, to ask questions, to give the benefit of the doubt, to seek to show forgiveness instead of revenge. To look to understand their perspective, to apply the gospel to that situation. Oh, how well this would have served Jonah in this instance. To slow and consider the perfect will and ways of God for why he would save such an undeserving people. To remember who God is and who Jonah is. How differently his prayer could have gone if his mind was not only on his sinful flesh and what he wanted or didn't want. How many fights have you had with a spouse, a loved one, a close family friend, simply because you chose to fire back in your emotion, your flesh, before you gave them the benefit of the doubt, before you tried to really hear their perspective, understand the situation? Again, I won't ask for a raise of hands. Solomon has good counsel in his wisdom in this area. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his spirit. Spirit here means anger, emotions, feelings. Solomon said it, I didn't. But a wise man quietly holds it back. There's a restraint that in the wisdom of the Lord and the work of the Lord in our lives will show James and Solomon in their counsel is giving us a good word. It will go better for you if you'll slow down, hold back from your immediate fleshly emotions leading to anger. Listen longer, empathize, aim to truly hear them, forgive them, and seek to apply the gospel instead. What we must do, church, every moment of every day is return to the gospel, be reoriented by the truths of the gospel, We need each other to be reorienting us to the truths of the gospel, to pick up the phone or text a brother or sister to say, hey, I'm I'm tempted to vent in anger or to turn to something that does not honor God. Will you pray for me? Will you hold me accountable? Will you rebuke me if needed? Oh, I wish Jonah would have seen this, done this. Instead, in his response, he just gives way to sin. Consider the massive revival he just witnessed And yet his selfishness is so thick, he wants to be somewhere else. Not in the midst of a people who have been completely turned around. He wants to be somewhere else. Worse, he wants to be nowhere. He wants to die. Look with me at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I can't help but wonder... Does Jonah feel this way because he's just so selfishly undone that it didn't go his way? Or is he in this moment seeing, here I am, I screwed it up once again. I've made it about me instead of about the Lord. Either way, he is sinfully or self-mindedly upset in his request. It's selfish. Instead of trusting what God has in front of him, instead of confessing his sin and asking the Lord to help him repent from it and have a different attitude and mindset, he's quick to resolve to just being done. I just quit. I mean, how silly is it when this happens, when we do this? It's much easier to evaluate in other people's lives and harder for us to see it in ourselves. But a couple quick examples. I'm coaching the boys in summer baseball right now. It is the best sport. We love it a lot. And so we're having a good time. And, but man, it's, it's so hard as a coach to see that kid who's 0 for 3 hang his head. And you're going to see in his face, he just wants to go home. But then to see what that does to the other teammates. See, 
That desire just to quit is all about me. It's not going the way I want it to go. I'm embarrassed. I'm not liking how this is going. I just want to be gone. Instead of thinking about what's on his face as he walks back to the dugout affects the next guy going up to bat. He's still on a team. The game is not over yet. What about when you want to leave a church, a healthy church, that you really have no business leaving? There's good and right reasons to leave churches, unbiblical churches all around, unhealthy. But a biblical church, you want to leave a biblical church, a healthy church that you've been involved in, you're a part of, you're all worked up in how it's not going the way you want it for you. You've gotten to this thing where you've got focused on this one thing. Instead of slowing to consider your participation and involvement in service and what that means for everyone else in that body. It's all about me and what I want, so I'm going to pick up my toys and go somewhere else. But what about the part you play for the body of Christ and what you mean to so many in the life of that church? What about when you want to quit your marriage? Fail to see the gross impact of tearing apart God's design that a husband and wife, a mother and father would raise children. Or worse, fail to see the purpose of God for the covenant of marriage until death do you part is to tell a story about Christ's never-ending covenant with his bride, the church, according to Ephesians 5. We just want to throw that all away and say, but, but I'm not happy, or this, I'm not getting what I want. I'm, I'm done with this thing not going my way. Selfishness. What about when you want to quit life? And in that, you selfishly just fail to see why so many love you. And, 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 and blatantly, grossly fail to see that the sovereign God has numbered your days. He's purposed you for a purpose, for a plan. But, but selfishly, we just want to tap out of all that. We just want to make it about us. It is sinful, it is selfish just to quit like that. It is a mindset that is fixed on self and not on others. How desperate we are to die. We are desperate to die. But not to physical life, like Jonah immaturely is yelping at God about. But die to our sin and to ourself. Amen? We're desperate to die to our sin and ourself. To be used by the Lord for his good purposes for our days. Jonah 4.4, the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? (laughs) The passing reproof of God for Jonah. Do you do well? How is this going for you, young man? Highlighting the slippery slope of being angry at the will of God and the grace of God to save whom he will, that Jonah would have contention for that? Is this smart? Is this a good thing that you, would, that you would resent? Why is it dangerous? Why is this slippery slope to do this? Because of this. While, because while God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, he is the utmost capable and righteous in doing so, of smiting or ending any of his creation at any moment he wills to do it. Two names come to mind. Ananias and Sapphira, who stole a prophet that wasn't theirs and then lied about it. And in God's perfect wisdom, he ended them on the spot, dead. I've taken stuff that wasn't mine and then I've proceeded to lie about it many times in my youth have you ever slowed to really consider how much of God's common grace is at work in the fact that you're even still here sadly Jonah doesn't heed God's reproof 
And instead he collects his things and goes off to have a pity party. Look with me at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. (laughs) This is hilarious. He picks up his stuff and just walks out of town. Props up some cardboard or whatever he had back in that day. I don't think cardboard was invented yet. (laughs) Sometimes it's good to go take a walk. I give that counsel as a pastor all the time. You need to be better in the heat of the moment of saying, well, I'm not checking out from this. I just need to go cool down and go take a walk. Some of you who are guilty of throwing stuff or saying stuff you should never say need to get way better at taking walks. I'm serious. Just walk out the front door and go around the block and go pray. Get your Bible and go get in the Word. Get your phone and call a more mature brother or sister and say, will you pray for me? My sin is brewing. I need to be reminded of the truths of the gospel. I need you to love me enough to rebuke me and prepare me to see what I don't see in the situation so I can honor the Lord with my next steps instead of dishonor him. Sometimes a walk is good. But that's not what's happening here. No, no, he goes and sets up shop to basically say, okay, God, then I'm going to sit here and we're going to see how good this is going to turn out for these filthy dogs that you decided to give grace to. So really, this is his attitude. Sits down all huffy, his stupid little shade thing he made. But we have to see, in that sinful way of retreating, some of us are good at just unplugging from the conflict because we're just tired of dealing with it. But but there's no good resolve in that. And you have to see that by doing that, you unplug from the mission field that God has you on. You unplug from the ministry He has for you to do that day. How many days are you on the sidelines having a pity party because you won't get back in the game? How many days are you staying in transition or thinking about it? But those are days that God ordained for you to be on the, on the battlefield, in ministry, in mission, testifying, serving. How many, how many years of your marriage are just on funky pause because you won't humble yourself to be the one to help initiate some, some humble confession of sin unto real repentance? Or maybe another family relationship. Man, to, to honor the Lord just to show humility and, and open that door to turn the other cheek to say, Can we, could we find a way forward to, to seek the Lord in this? I want to honor Him. There's all kinds of sinful and selfish reasons why we retreat. But in that retreating, in that way, where it's not just to take a break to get to go back in to seek resolve and unity, you got to see that retreat. This is a win for the enemy. He's, he's got, he got you out of the game. Your hurt and bitterness turns to avoidance of others and ongoing resentment. Can I just encourage you? You, whoever you are, in that situation you're thinking of, where you're still going, yeah, but I really wish they would take the first step. Stop it. You take the first step. The Lord has you here today to bring you conviction and motivation in the gospel to humble yourself and pursue reconciliation, repentance. What a joy it's been to see God do that work. Lady in our congregation didn't talk to her brother for 30 years. They didn't talk to each other. After a sermon one morning, wrote him a letter, completely reconciled the relationship. 30 years. Praise the Lord. Jonah in his selfishness and his bitterness and his sin leaves the city, leaves the mission field to be alone, to be about himself. When we get mad at God's hand in our life, we often withdraw in this selfish way. And in these moments, we need to see we're no good to anybody. Jonah's testimony could have been super helpful to these Ninevite people, 
but instead the most mature guy in the Lord has some kind of huffy pout out of the city to go perch up and look down at him. In what way, let me ask you, have you allowed hurt, hardship, something that is not going your way, to cause you to be all about yourself? And in this, you're missing out on your God-given opportunity to do the work in the ministry He's called you to do among the people that He's put in your life. While Jonah's pity party continues, God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, shows His mercy for Jonah once again. Look with me at this verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. (laughs) Jonah deserves a holy spanking. And God shows him mercy and gives him shade. Evidently, the shade structure that Jonah made was proving to be insufficient. Even though Jonah is once again rebelling, God is patient to show him mercy by providentially providing a plant to grow to give him rest from his discomfort. And I just ask us again, how often does the Lord do this in your life? Even in, How often does he do it and you don't even realize it? I mean, you might be in one of the seasons where just nothing's clicking right and it just seems to always be uphill. And, and, and you're sinfully guilty of turning to the Lord to go, God, just make it stop. Like, when are you going to give me a little grace, a little mercy? And, and just by the way, for all of us who are saved in Christ, how could God ever show us more grace than what he did on the cross of Calvary? Like somehow there's something better than that gift, right? I mean, we who are recipients of grace need to abound in gratitude for salvation and never be the spoiled kid that goes, yeah, God, if I could just have a little more. Like, really? But in all that, like, how many times do we not really miss? We don't really see what he's doing. In the fact that because of how you eat, you should have been dead about four years ago, but by his grace, he continues you. No, I'm not even joking. Like, there's so many ways his mercy is at work in your life, and we don't even see it. We should be a far more grateful people than we are. Look at the second part of verse 6. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. (laughs) He was exceedingly angry, and now he's exceedingly glad. I almost picture him getting up under the plant shade and doing a little jig. Like, he's just that happy. He's just swung, right? Oh, happy, how happy we are when it goes our way, right? I mean, is this not the story of our lives? Bitter, jealous, resentful when others are blessed, especially people we don't think should be blessed. Like, really? That guy? That, that, hello? Over here? Right? We, that's our attitude? It, but see with me that this is just another outplay of our sin, our selfishness at work, on display. See with me the trap of finding our happiness also only in the temporary things. He's stoked for a plant that grew. How temporary is this? And and we do this all the time. I mean, you look back over a season and you you think of your high moments and they're related to a tasty meal or a memorable night out, a great vacation, a fun ride, a romantic exchange. But these are all Sources of fleeting happiness. They don't continue to brew up happiness. They're for a moment. You digest the meal, it's done. The vacation's over. You're exhausted. You have to do laundry. Uh, They're fleeting. They're here for a moment and then they're gone. Okay, so then what about more lasting things? Uh, Like a close relationship. The love of a child. A good job. A good-looking body. A great car. Dream motorcycle. All of these things will eventually wear out, 
or they'll leave you, or they'll die. Do you realize that? Don't, don't say I'm just being pessimistic. You know me, I'm not that guy. I'm just speaking truth. They all are dying and are ending and are wearing out. They're fleeting. We must see that if your pursuit of happiness is in temporary things that God created, you will forever be chasing real joy. We are desperate for the lasting, instead all-satisfying joy of the Creator who was and is and forever will be. Amen? Our joy must be in Jesus, for He is the only true rock for which we can stand to know lasting joy and true satisfaction. Now, just because God provided a cover doesn't mean that this hillside pity party is something that the Lord wants Jonah to now do. But we play this game, too. Watch this with me. Could it be that Jonah sees God's loving him in the midst of his sinful rebellion again to give him compassion as some kind of like new affirmation that, oh, this is the good path you should be on? Just as Jonah could have wrongly looked at God's providential hand to provide a boat that day at the dock to go to, the, to Tarshish where he wanted to go. We, we do this too. And, and I told you in that sermon that day, and I'll tell you again today, the ready way is not always the right way. The, oh, the door is open. This must be what God wants me to do. No, not necessarily. It comes back to this theological understanding that's so, so important. It's a biblical understanding. It's the difference between the will of God's command and the will of His decree. We are responsible to act on and fulfill the will of God's command. What He instructs us to do, what He commands us to do, that's what we are to do. Sometimes the will of His decree seemed to be like opposite of that. But that's his providential right to decree with his creation what he wills. And it's not then our opportunity to go, oh, because this seems to be the open door by God's decree, that means this is where God wants me. No, what he wants us to do is to be obedient to the will of his command. At every moment of Jonah's journey, what he should do is, at any moment when he sees that he's in sin, is confess it as sin and turn to honoring the Lord. We should do the same thing. As much as his decree might be giving us grace or patience or provision, that doesn't mean that, oh, all now of a sudden this sinful thing is now God's goodwill for me. No, that's wrong. And that would be a wrong perspective for Jonah to take for this cover that the Lord's provided in this very sinful state that he's in. Instead of confessing his selfishness and his sin and joining God in what he's going to do with Nineveh, he remains bent to have it his way. So much so that he's sitting, waiting on God to change his mind to wipe out those Assyrian dogs as he sits up and watches them from his perch. Look at verse 7 through 9. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. See the temporariness of that provision? When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Sounds like a two-year-old. But if the story is written about us, I think we have many moments. I probably have many moments where I look like the same, right? This is our sin. If you remember, when Jonah was on the boat running from God's command to go to Nineveh, instead he goes the opposite direction. 
to do only what pleased him and not what would please the Lord, God sent a violent storm that would eventually cause Jonah to be thrown overboard into the depths of the Mediterranean on his way to sinking and dying. And and I've said many times, and especially in that sermon a few weeks ago, that many times the storms in our life are not God's judgment or wrath on us, but are often his mercy and grace to upset what is good and casual, to upset the claim we have on his creation that's sinful or overdone. Why? So that we might cling to him and savor him. That is the greatest gift God can give us is himself. To leave the person who seems to have a really great life dead in their sin is his wrath upon them. It is his love and his mercy many times when he sends storms or scorching heat on your head, wrecks you financially, burns your house down, causes great turmoil in your life. Why? Because although it maybe seemed like it was just all good and dandy, many times it's those moments where he wants you to be awakened from your drunken stupor, fleeting joy with those temporary things to cling to him all the more. There is no greater gift he could give you. See that. Trust in his hand. Repent from your sin. And hold fast to the living God. God's stripping Jonah down. Just like he did with that storm. To reveal the other things that he's trying to find happiness, identity in. Let me ask you, how might God be doing this right now in your life? To upset the temporary things that you once found happiness, comfort, identity, to reveal just how desperate you are for him alone. Look with me at, word, at God's words for Jonah in the closing two verses, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. It's God's way of saying these temporary things that you so over-celebrate. Verse 11, And I should not, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle, could get into the hierarchy of creation, how much more important a person is for a plant, even more than an animal. I'm not going to go there with this sermon, but that's essentially the point God's making. The Lord calls Jonah out, helps point out his sinful selfishness in the things he's interested in that only benefit him. Instead of realizing a hundred plus thousand people just completely turn their lives around points out that Jonah is quick to show pity and remorse for the fleeting plant, but at the same time then criticizes God for showing pity and grace to an entire nation of people, human beings, who were so lost in their sin, but now have been found. This is what he means when he says, more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right end from their left, they were so lost in their sin, they didn't know their right from their left. An entire nation and all the cattle... What he's pointing out there is God, who in his righteous wrath, many times would smite, wipe out a nation. He would command others. This thing called being under the ban, where he would say, go take out this people group. And the command, if they were under the ban, it meant not one thing survives. Every person, every child, every structure, every animal, every piece of gold, every fence is to be torn down to ashes. Not one of these things is to be enjoyed. God in his righteous, perfect will and wrath would do that for other people. So when he also mentions the cattle here, it's not like he's got this big thing for cows or steaks. Although they're a big part of the economy, the value of that economy, he's pointing out how the economy as a whole is standing. They repented and there's no judgment brought upon these people. How easy it is to get caught up 
holding the wrong things. That's what he's calling them out on. You're, you're worried about the plant and missing an opportunity to have a grip on the right things. It's a matter of priority. We must apply this to our lives too. We must be able to let go of the things that we have no business holding on to to the degree we do and or begin to have a right grip on the good things that God's put in our lives so that He is first and foremost above all, all else. This is, church, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength and mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. To see the order of priority given to us in the great commandment that God is first and highest way up here and whatever is number two in your life is a distant number two and three and four. The marriage, the family, the kids, the job, the toys, the trips, the health. So that we don't become idolaters and, and have an overgrip of the created things and dismiss the Creator. It's not that we can't enjoy the comforts of the shade or a, or a home or, or a nice vacation, but they cannot be more important to us than the priorities of God and who God is in our lives. We must first be for Him and then for the people He puts in our path to minister to and testify. When our love and our priorities are rightly ordered, then we will live and love, not selfishly, sinfully, but in a way that honors God. We're desperate for the gospel to do this work in us. And as the chapter ends and the curtain falls on Jonah's testimony here with verse 11, we don't know what came next, what Jonah did with this rebuke, how long he took to repent and turn from it. And in some ways, I think, I think the cliffhanger is left there because it leaves us to consider what we will do with these things in our lives. What are you doing with the sovereign provisions of God and the sovereign storms of God that He puts in your life to cause you to repent and trust in Him alone? How are you confessing your selfish agenda and submitting yourself to His agenda for your life? No matter what it costs, no matter how long it takes. May we have a right grip on the right things in our lives and live for His glory and others' good all the days that He ordains for us, which might not be through the end of today, which for the Christian is good news because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if that's His sovereign plan, then so be it. We trust in Him. But each day he does give us, we should wake up with a vigor to serve him and do with what he's called us to do. May our stories not end with us facing the judgment seat where we hear God say, Away with me, you evildoer, for I never knew you. Because all you knew was religion, some church attendance, some, some, some time with God in your childhood, but you had not really repented of your sin died to yourself and trust your life to Jesus as Savior. Instead, may we know him because he stood in our place, because we trusted him with our lives, and may he look upon us and say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. How will your story end? Instead of wanting to die because our lives are not going our way, May we say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us, to the family of God, to study your word. What a gift your word is to, to have this book of Jonah ordained to be in the canon, ordained to be persevered to, to this day that we would know what you would have for us. 
that we could study these things and learn and grow. The Holy Spirit would bring conviction, would bring faith, uh, faith in you for, for salvation and new life. I pray for those who this is their appointed day to truly see through their religion and see that they're, they're desperate for the gospel, to truly die to self, to live to Christ, to, to be saved. And for those who are saved, Lord, and have, have kind of stumbled along in, in, in this haphazard way of having too much of a grip in our selfish desires or the things you've created, that we would really repent and, and confess that as sin and, and, and look to you to serve you and fulfill your will and, and glorify you and to testify of this good gospel of grace for all those you'd put in our path. You are the King of glory. We will forever praise you for your glorious grace. What a gift. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray.